tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go Welcome to Film Strip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And we're all welcome to the review of Poltergeist, starring Joe Beth Williams, Craig T. Nelson, Beatrice Strait, Oliver Robbins, Heather O'Rourke, Dominic Dunn, and Zelda Rubenstein. Directed by Toby Hooper, based on a story by Steven Spielberg, released in 1982 on a $10.7 million budget, grossed $121 million at the box office. Seminal classic from the 80s, and so we're closing up our Shocktober Cursed Movies retrospective, Nick, with this one. And this one's different than The Omen and The Exorcist. I mean, The Omen really came from The Exorcist. We know it was inspired by it. Both of those are all about, like, satanic involvement and possession and stuff. And decided to go with something a little different here in the Cursed Movies retrospective for Poltergeist. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, this one does have kind of a history, just like the other ones, as far as having a cursed uh, backstory. And I think it's, you know, probably one of the more well-known ones. I think even it beats The Exorcist as far as just kind of like the rumors and everything that went around it from, you know, did they use dead bodies in the climax here to, you know, Heather O'Rourke, uh, you know, tragically dying during the making of the third one. So, um it's just one of these movies where it kind of felt it, it, it fit in with the theme. But I mean, I guess no matter which way you put it, I mean, it all has to do with death and, you know, what's beyond and everything like that. So, I mean, it, it does it does tie in it. Maybe it's not directly about the devil or something like that, but it does have a long supernatural. It does have a lot of supernatural elements to it. It totally does. And I mean, the, you know, most people, of course, know the great story about it. Spielberg was really upset that people were making sequels to his movies. He hated Jaws 2 almost as much as you do and decided that he didn't want anybody to mangle Close Encounters to the Third Gun. So he wrote a treatment for what was essentially the sequel to that. And out of that script called Night Skies, or that story, I should say, came... E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Gremlins, and this movie. So I guess we have Steven Spielberg to thank for three more classics, though he didn't direct any of those other ones, yeah, including this one. Uh, well, I get, well, he did E.T., I take that back. But yeah. this one is debatable. There is a lot of you know uh, controversy over did he direct it or Toby Hooper. Uh, a lot of the cast, you know, have come out and said that, you know, Toby Hooper was in his trailer just, you know, smoking it up like Cheech and Chong. And, you know, Steven Spielberg was there basically <laughs> filling in for him. But due to uh, the way the MPAA and everything like that kind of uh, does their stuff or the Director's Guild, that he couldn't take credit for it or whatever. So it's basically like, you know, he ghost directed it or something. There's been a lot of stuff back and forth about it. It's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's almost as interesting as the uh, supposed uh, curses that have gone along with this movie. So, I mean, with all the stuff going around it, though, too, I mean, it's just it's one of these movies, too, like we brought up like Night Skies, that it's kind of amazing that like three of these films branched off from it. And I've always been one of the people that are like, man, I really wish they would go back and actually make that Night Skies movie just to see how many elements from the other movies were in there. But it'll never happen, at least, you know, not in our, you know, not anytime soon. But it would be kind of cool. It'd be a cool little fan film to see or something like that or fa fan does, you know, wish to come true. 
Yeah, I wonder if that'll ever happen. Maybe when Spielberg passes, or maybe you know, maybe before then he'll get nostalgic and want to do his own stuff. I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, we're in the age of remakes, reboots, reimaginings now, anyway. So I could see it as an option instead of uh, doing that. But any studio worth its salt, and including Spielberg, would know. I got three properties out of this. Why would I just combine them back into one again? Like, th- there's some fun to be had in in the idea, and you can read the Night Skies story and script out there. I actually read it several years ago, and I mean, there's there's a lot that's not in this. It's much darker, uh, and there's a lot that's not in any of those movies. But there are enough elements that you know you see things like Stripe and Gizmo, and you see uh, you know this little boy that befriends one of the nice aliens, and then uh, somebody gets sucked through a television. There's all kinds of stuff, you know, in that, and it, it's a fun exercise to think about. As far as you know, who directed what? I mean, I've heard some of that too. There's other the actors that said no, Toby Hooper did all of it. I kind of tend to believe this is very much like George P. Cosmatos directing uh, Rambo Two or Cobra, and Stallone is really there setting up the shot and doing everything, but George is the one that's pulling the action and, and kind of pulling it together. Uh, or maybe, maybe even the way like Kurt Russell directed Tombstone. I mean, they, he's talked about that openly in another Cosmatos-directed film at this point, uh, who was brought in specifically for that. Um, I, I Everything I've read and the stuff I tend to believe the most is that Spielberg did a, had a lot of hands in the way this was going to look and the way it was going to get executed, but Toby Hooper very much has his stamp on this movie, and, you know, controversial opinion, maybe, I, I think it's his best movie by far. I don't... You know, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not one of like my seminal favorites in terms of horror films or films at all. I know it's kind of homework for a lot of people, but I, I never really found it to be all that great. I, I think this movie's much more rewatchable than that. Well, I think that's because of the Spielberg element in there. I mean, I think, you know, when you watch any of Toby Hooper's movies, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, you know, so, even something like Life Force or... Uh, what's that one? Um, invasion. Oh, the Invaders from Mars. Yeah. Actually, actually, I have a, a soft spot for that. It's cheesy, but I kind of like that movie. It it's does. A kid's memory. It, it, I mean, it's okay, but it's one of those things where it's like if you watched his movies and then you watch Spielberg stuff like Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and all that, and you'd put this on, you go, "Who directed that? You know, was it this guy or this guy?" I think more people are going to go. It's that's it's got a Spielberg flair to it. You know what I mean? Where it's like it's it's yeah. very one of those movies where it's light, but then it's dark at the same time. I mean, very much even like Jaws, where yeah, there's a lot of dark stuff in there, but there's so much comedy and just like humanity and stuff like that that throughout the movie that makes you in, makes you endeared to the characters and makes it so much rewa- makes it so rewatchable. And Poltergeist is very much that. I mean, it's this movie is where it's almost kind of like a movie of almost like two halves here because. The first part of this movie is is a very light, almost like you're watching it. Like this is supposed to be a horror movie, you know what I mean? It's like it's almost kind of fun, and then it kind of takes its turn there. But that's a lot like what Spielberg does, especially in his like '80s, you know, repertoire, where it's like, you know, Indiana Jones will be there swinging around and having fun, chasing after a boulder, and then all of a sudden we got stuff ripping people's faces off at the end. <laughs> Which we get, which which you get in this movie as well. Yeah, you do. Spielberg makes movies for the whole family, and I don't mean that tongue in cheek. I mean, like, really, he makes movies you can take your kids to see or a family can watch together. And the thing is, is a lot of them, particularly in this area, are comments on the family unit and things like that. Before he got into doing stuff like Schindler's List and you know, uh, Saving Private Ryan and all that kind of stuff, uh, this was the kind of thing he did. 
you know, Close Encounters, E.T., this, you know, again, as story credit, are about family and family unit and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, he was going through a lot of himself and his personal life at this point, and it was reflecting on the screen. But the Spielberg schmaltz of this movie cannot be understated. Like, it is definitely a sheen that, that it's a cloud that hangs over it, like the clouds that hang over Cuesta Verde in this movie. It's, it's hard to not think about him when you think of this. But again, credit to Toby Hooper, who is good with a camera and knows how to to build a little bit of tension when it's necessary, did a good job with it. And I have distinct memories of seeing this. I don't think we saw it in theaters, Nick. I mean, 1982, I would have been six at this point. I possibly may have been a sperm at that time. It's the- I was going to say, were you even alive? Were you a part of the uh, earth no, at that point? No, I actually wasn't even, <laughs> I wasn't even conceived until 1983, so... <laughs> See, I, but I do remember seeing this on like HBO or Showtime, whichever it was on, and like home, not rental at the time, but like on cable and stuff like that. Like I remember watching this movie with my family, and then I think we taped it off of you know one of the free weekends or something one time, and I remember watching this quite a bit. Um, oddly enough, I've, I've seen the second one probably as many times as I've seen this because it was part of the same Showtime package or whatever. I've never seen the third one and I have no memory or knowledge about the legacy TV series at all. Yeah. And so maybe by the time you know, we get around to recording that you're releasing this um, because we're recording it earlier than October, but I, I maybe I'll go back and watch that third one or something and post about it on Twitter or Facebook, but I, yeah, I have no, no real great memories of it. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know why I've watched the second one as many times as I did. Probably when I was a kid and I was just bored and I don't know, it was a horror movie, but I, I've grown to now, like I tried to rewatch that one after watching this and I barely got through it. Like th- this to me feels like a movie that got spun into a franchise by a studio. Um, but it had no business being one. And that's ironic considering that it was created because Spielberg hated Hated sequels and wanted to do his own. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen the sequels. I've seen the third one. I mean, Pol- Poltergeist: The Legacy is very much like Friday the Thirteenth, the series where it's title only. It has absolutely no connection at all to the movie at all. So, uh, the third one is very, very bad. But I mean, we'll, we'll get into the sequel stuff at the end of this. I won't want to. I'll, I'll spoil it a little bit for you when we get there. That sounds good. We'll do that. And then we should also talk about the remake that they did in 2015. But before we go any further, I guess it's time for a plot summary. So let me pull that out here for you. It's been a while since maybe you've seen Poltergeist. Meet the Freelings, an American family living in a sprawling suburb in California. Dad Steven is the developer's top salesman, accounting for 42% of the homes sold in the Quest of Verde developed. Mom, Diane, juggles the responsibilities of running a busy household with three kids, teenage daughter Dana, who always seems to be gone somewhere, little boy Robbie, and little girl Carol Ann. Everything changes for the Freelings when ghosts start communicating with them through their television set, fixating on young Carol Ann. And after a wild night where a tree comes to life to attack Robbie and a tornado rips through, Carol Ann disappears through a portal in her closet. The Freelings contact paranormal investigators led by Dr. Lush, who try to help them reconnect with their daughter, who they can speak with through that uh, television set when it's on the static channel. 
The investigators learn there are many spirits the Freelings are dealing with, and therefore call it a poltergeist instead of a haunting. Stephen learns from his real estate developer boss that the subdivision was built on the site of a cemetery, and though what he doesn't realize until the very end is that all they did was move the gravestones, and the bodies are still underneath all of the houses. Les calls in the spiritual medium, Tangina, who helps Diane enter the portal, retrieve Carol Ann, and return to the plane of existence. But during their last night in the house, the Freelings think everything is fine, only to be attacked by the beast, the evil spirit that is also uh, poltergeisting them or haunting them, however you want to say it. The family gathers up a few things, jumps in the car, and escapes barely as their house is consumed in a ball of energy. The family, intact but exhausted, takes refuge in a Holiday Inn where they push the television outside and slam the door. And that's a, that's a straight-through plot summary. It's actually a really simple plot, and I think you nailed it. This is a tale of two movies. We spend the first 25 minutes of this movie getting to know this family and doing some kind of goofy hijinks where the chairs move around, the little girl slides on the floor, and she talks to people through the television set but we only hear one side of the conversation it's not until that storm hits that this thing kicks into high gear and we start getting into some actual terror or horror oh yeah totally and that, that that's the really like the one thing i love about this movie the most is the slow build and to sit there and say like slow you automatically think like oh boring or something like that it's not boring it's very endearing and just the whole way that they made made it such a focal point of this film to get to know the family, to get to, you know, sit there and almost feel like you're part of them is was such a great decision. I mean, even when you watch this movie in the beginning, just like the hijinks with, you know, they're putting the pool in the backyard and the construction workers and everything like that, how, you know, they're, they're coming in and, you know, reaching through the window and grabbing something to drink or eating breakfast, you know, there. And, you know, even the stuff with the neighbors next door with the, uh, you know, the channel changers being on the, ch- on the, on the same frequency and stuff. So it, it's such a, I mean, for me, like, those are my favorite parts of this movie. I mean, even when you watch, like, a movie like Lord of the Rings, those are my favorite parts of the beginning. Like, when they're in the Shire and you get to just know everybody and kind of see their way of life. That is, right here, I mean, that's the same thing where this is my favorite parts of it is just getting to know this family. And I think kind of the weirdest thing about this, though, too, is, like, it's the 80s and everything like this. And their daughter, I mean, their eldest daughter, who she's not really, doesn't have really a big part in this movie. I mean, she's basically, like, 16. And you look at them and they're like, they're not that old. So it makes you really kind of think it's like, well, you know, they, they had her at a, at, at a very, very young age, which I think is kind of an interesting concept to have in a movie like this. Cause you know, back in the eighties, seventies, you know, especially in the early eighties and stuff like that, the idea of like the nuclear family was very much like, yeah, you married your high school sweetheart or your college sweetheart, you get, you get, you get married, you have a job, you build a house and then you have a family and just kind of interjecting that little bit of realism to it, I think really kind of goes a long way. Yeah, I mean, they say in the movie that Diane is 32. If Dana's 16, that means she got pregnant when she was 16. Mm -hmm. And Steven's maybe a couple years older. So they were kids, you know, the 60s, summer of love, all that kind of stuff. And I mean, they, you know, they still kind of hang on and roll a little marijuana and they talk about, you know, their, their past days. I mean, I think Diane has a great line where it's like, just remember back when you used to have an open mind before implying like before you were a total corporate sellout, like you are now, (laughs) which by the way, thank you for being, cause this house is awesome. But, 
but you know, I want to see yeah. that house that he brought up where they have the swimming pool that's halfway in the house and halfway outside. I'm like, yeah, that would be an awesome house to live in. I don't care that these, <laughs> I mean, track housings. I mean, that that's what everybody lives in basically nowadays with, with the subdivisions and stuff. But I'm looking at these houses. I'm like, these are freaking gorgeous. But I think this is, you know, yeah. California or whatever. I'm like, man, these houses right mm-hmm. now would have to be well over a million dollars in that market. Oh, easily. And I mean, this, this was at the time in America when the suburbs became a thing. And it was a big deal to, if you lived in these large population centers, to move into the suburbs. And I mean, look, I grew up in the small town I grew up in. I still lived in a subdivision. You know, I mean, it was, it was two rows. It was two circles of houses, the inner circle and the outer circle. And, you know, that I just knew it. So this was something everybody in America could relate to at the time because we saw it all around us. And Stephen represented, Stephen and Diane represented those kids of the 60s that had now kind of grown up a little bit and had kind of come through the tough times and were having a good bit of success. And they weren't like stupid rich, but they were well off enough that they could have this great house and, you know, she could stay at home and take care of the kids. He worked, you know, pretty hard and they had, I mean, they talk about how hard they worked for this, but you get the sense that like Dana is the part that like, oh, that was a surprise. And like she dropped so many lines. Dominic Dunn, by the way, who was killed like shortly after this was released and a tragic murder. That's the, one of the other curses of this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she has such dropped little lines about like, oh yeah, I know that hotel. Uh, nothing, you know. And I mean, she shows up at the end. She's got a huge hickey on her neck. Like it looks like the second time they've done that. I'm like, this girl is like a, a tramp. <laughs> like she's she's running around. She's being a, a rebellious kid in the '80s. You know, she's going out with a guy that drives a red Trans Am. I mean, holy cow! But her parents even though they are reading Reagan books and stuff, they're still smoking weed and they kind of, I mean, they don't really go weird when like their daughter says she's talking to people through the television. They're like, well, you know, yeah, that seems possible. Like they're, they're a really interesting example of the nuclear family in the early 1980s. And the reason this works though, because you, you talk about how, all this setup is really what you like. The reason it works is because our two main actors here are amazing. Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson have had long careers for a good reason. And this is why they can inhabit the roles that they're in and just disappear into them. Oh, totally. I mean, I think Craig T. Nelson to me is always going to be coach. Um, you know what I mean? I, I, <laughs> that was a show that was kind of a staple of my childhood. And, but the thing is like, he's so good in this movie that, you know, like a lot of times, like I'll watch a movie, like something with like Tom Cruise, and I don't care if he's playing Ethan Hunt or who the hell ever. It's like that's Tom Cruise. You know what I mean? It's like you always just right. put that, you put him first. But Craig T. Nelson, I mean, especially in this, you think like right away, you'd be like, okay, it's Craig T. Nelson or it's Coach. I fall into it, and it's just like, no, it's it's the dad. You know what I mean? Yeah, I recognize him from other stuff here, but he does such a good job at it that it's like he's so believable as this, you know, you know, getting to be middle aged father who's, you know. Basically, like I think a lot like me, where it's like, boy, you're, you changed a lot since your youth because you got to be a little bit more secure here for your family, but you still kind of got that little bit in, into you. And then, of course, you got you know the mom, who I think she does a fantastic job of just being like a really sincere, you know, understanding, compassionate mom, but also, like I said, kind of cool. Where you know you got you got that scene like in the, in the beginning with those construction workers, and you know they're they're basically making moves at the mob, and I'm thinking I'm like oh my god like nine nine out of ten moms, especially today you get all the Karens calling up their boss, getting them fired, and she's <laughs> sitting there and she's laughing because her daughter's giving them the finger, and it's like you know hell yeah I'm like that's you know that that that's the way I I raise my kid and my my son it's like stand up for yourself you know don't have dad come here and fight your battles, and I just saw that I'm like yeah she's a, she's a cool mom you know she's very cool. 
She very much is, and and each of the kids has their own dynamic, and and that's what was fun to to revisit and remember. I mean, everybody knows Carol Ann, you know, they're here, and just that she's just this cute little blonde angel at this point. And what was funny is years later, and now she's like eleven and twelve, so it's not as you know prevalent. But when my oldest niece was a little girl, she had this white wispy blonde hair, and now it's a little darker. But I, I would get like these Carol Ann things over her. I'm like, please don't touch this television. I'm glad the static doesn't exist in your life because you would be the kid that would do this. But she's so cute and poor Robbie, even with his goofed up teeth and stuff, is still just, I mean, he reminds me of my brother. Like, honestly, like I, my brother's a little bit older than he was, but he just kind of is in the same stuff. You know, Dana's the one that like, I don't have a point of reference for because again, I was too young to really know anybody that old. Maybe some of my babysitters were kind of like that. I don't know. There might have been one or two. I'm, I don't know that they were sneaking around of the Holiday Inn, but I didn't know. You know, I wouldn't have known <laughs> the difference at the time. Uh, but yeah, they are the cool. They are a cool family. They're cool parents, and they just kind of go along and do what they do. Like that's the thing is they are they are so incredibly normal. I mean, even down to the point of like they kind of disagree with their weird neighbors. You know, neighbor and him somehow the remote controls are on the same frequency. I have no frame of reference for this. We didn't have a remote control television until I was a teenager because I like my dad would hit me on the head. I was the remote control. You know, <laughs> growing up. So I don't I don't I, I always thought this was such a wild scene when they're flipping back and forth between the game. What's funny about it now, Nick, is you watch that. Whoever Steven's friends are, like one of them's on the phone with this bookie. There's some guys that got some serious dough on this Rams game. And I got to tell you, in the 80s, that was really betting. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. I, I, I just, like I said, I mean, these are just the scenes I, I, I really enjoy. And, like, man, it's like, you know, I, I live in a subdivision and it's like we, we all got those one set of neighbors that are just kind of like, uh, you know, you're never just, you're never going to get along with them. So it's very relatable to me. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it is, right? It's it's just a different experience. But it it, it grounds these people in, in something where we can feel like reality because what this movie is going to ask us to buy into and believe is stuff that a lot of people have a very hard time accepting, believing, looking at, no matter what it looks like on the screen. And I think that's a smart script and a, and a smart director knows how to bring along a story of, I'm going to ask you to take a journey with me to really believe in supernatural things that up until this point, you had never seen anything like this before, right? I mean, it's been done a million times since, but up uh, when this movie was made, man, like this would have blown people's minds. And if you're going to get them to do that, you have to establish a family that we want to root for, that we care about, and we want to see them go through their journey. I mean, you think about Stephen after Carol Ann disappears. I mean, he's a wreck. He's a mess. He's not going to work. He claims he's got the flu. The whole family does. When his boss finally gets him to take a drive, his boss is convinced this guy is getting wooed away by somebody else. I got to make sure he's taken care of. And I mean, you're in sales, Nick. You've, you've had these conversations with your bosses. He takes him up on the hills like, this could be your bedroom. This could be this. You're in phase five. And you watch Steven start putting the pieces together like, man, this guy is such a scumbag. I am so much better than this. <laughs> Yeah, and that's one thing too is his boss. Um, I don't know if um, you've seen the original uh, uh, Return of the Living Dead and the uh, second yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, he's in there, so he he's a fun actor. Yeah, right? he's so very over the top and everything. But uh, I, I got I got like the Jaws Mayor off of that guy. Oh, like, totally, so much. Totally, yeah. It's it's yeah. a play on that. It's a play on the you know the dirty politician putting you know profits and everything, or the business owner putting uh you know the well being of the company over the well being of the customer, or the consumer, and or the uh you know the taxpayer, whatever way you want to put it. So, I mean, it's yeah. it's it's again, it's it's very relatable, and that's one thing.
thing I think that they did with this movie so well is, you know, like you watch something like Jaws and it's like at the end you're going to believe the, the the shark is alive and there and it's going to blow up from an oxygen tank because you were with the movie the entire time and it earns that. And it's the same thing with this movie where it's like we're going to go crazy. We're going to go off the wall with a lot of stuff here. But the reason why you're going to totally buy it is because the beginning and the characters are so real that of course you're going to buy it because it's all set basically, you know, it's, it's our reality of what's going on here. I mean, it's not heightened or anything in the beginning. So it's just one of those well-executed screenplays as well as well-executed, you know, even for at the time, I mean, even today, I think the special effects do hold up quite a bit. I mean, when we get into the stuff with like, you know, even the chairs moving around and everything, obviously, you know, they're probably done with fishing line and everything, but it works well. And it's something that's still like when you watch it, you're like, it's, it's pretty cool, you know, especially like with the chairs getting all stacked on each other. And, yeah. and that, that's one thing too, is like, man, I'm like, you know, we, we, we reviewed the movies like paranormal activity and everything like this. And that's always one of my, especially when we first reviewed that movie, I lived in an apartment when we first uh, reviewed paranormal activity one. And you go back to that and I'm like, why the hell don't they get out of that damn house? You know what I mean? But now being a homeowner myself, <laughs> now I'm like, I put a lot of money into here. I'm going to hold my ground. So I kind of see what's going on there. So it's, it's just, it's funny seeing the reactions and everything like that. And I just, I totally just buy, you know, Craig T. Nelson's reaction too when they put Carol Ann on the ground and they put that football helmet on her and it pulls her forward. And just his like, you know, the pen drops out of his mouth or something like that. And he's just kind of like, he's got to sit down. Because it's like his breath has left him and he's like, oh, what? What's I'm confused. I don't know what's going on here. And just like I said, being a homeowner now and a family, it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, before I'd be like, well, get the hell out of here. But now I have a little bit more of an understanding where it's like, no, we just can't just grab the kids and get the hell out of here. Oh, I mean, I love his whole total dad reaction to like, no one's going in the kitchen till I find out what's going on. <laughs> like he just father knows best lays that line down. And I love how he says it too. And if you watch Joe Beth Williams gives such a great reaction, she looks at him like, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> and it's like, okay, whatever you leave at eight 30, you know, I'll see you at six. We'll do what we need to do to survive during the day. You know, like I, and, but that reminds me of like, the way my parents were too. Like it's, it's just funny growing up like that. It's neat. Craig T. Nelson's amazing in this. Uh, Joe Beth Williams is so much, though, what really centers this because she is the heart of this movie in so many ways. Because a lot of this movie is about the connection of a mother with her children. You know, and there's always that maternal instinct of like the mama bear, protect my children. I mean, she gets a little bit of that at the end, you know, when the, the beast is attacking and all that. But really, the way she's able to still talk to Carol Ann and they have to go back and forth together and stuff like you, you just get this sense of like, I mean, that kid is a kid who probably didn't even know what kind of movie she was in, right? Had no idea what was going on. Cause she, and that's the thing is Heather O'Rourke is barely in this movie. And at one point they send Robbie in a cab somewhere, you know, <laughs> so we don't even know. like, I'm like, who, who, where did that kid go? You know, but she has this such connection to that daughter, that baby girl that she's going to do anything to reconnect with her, to bring her back. And the way she sells that without being too cheesy is what's, what's remarkable and is worth, praise because that could get really off-putting or really out of hand or feel forced and at no point does it and i mean we talked about that arena and i did with joe beth williams on the memories of me show back in april this year and i mean she's just as an earnest 
you know, actress. Like she just comes off like a real person. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's so cool about this is everybody here feels very real. They're not too pretty. They're not too ugly. They're just kind of real. They're just are what they are nowadays. Like, and you know, I'll, I'll say it now the problem, one of the big problems with the remake is everybody in it is gorgeous. And I'm like, no, nobody's like that. Sorry. (laughs) Like there are real people out there that they see your families are mixes of things that you, that always kills me nowadays that, these family movies and people are just, they're not, they don't look real. You know, they don't show their warts and their scars and these people do. And it's what makes it so much fun. So when all the weird shit starts happening, like we're breaking glasses, we got spoons bending, we got furniture moving around, all this, like the way they react to it seems so much more realistic than just the, Oh, we're haunted. Let's freak out. Oh yeah, totally. I, I, it's, it's a reserve reaction because even like when I think that with all the stuff's going on is like they they don't know what to make of it, you know what I mm-hmm. mean? It's like they just they 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 you know they know it's real, but it's kind of like everything I've known in my life says that this can't be real. So it's like you know they question it, and it's really not until the storm hits that everything really like for them really sinks home. Like holy crap, what is going on here? So oh yeah, and. You know that, that it's it's a freaky thing too. Like when I remember like rewatching this movie for the first time a couple of years ago, and it was wild since I saw it, and just the whole thing with like the kid almost getting eaten by the tree. I was like, holy crap, they actually went there. You know what I mean? It's like, would they, if if the father didn't intervene, would that tree have ate him? I, I think so. <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah. That's what I wanted to ask you. Is that you know Robbie's scared to death of that tree, which that is a spooky looking tree anyway. And my in laws have lots of trees on their lawns, and they have some kind of freaky looking trees too. Um, which is which is wild. None that I think would come through the window and try to eat you. But that tree looks like it was designed to do bad things to people. And for all we know, it was. You know, depending on what you believe about this movie and its whole lore through its sequels. Mm-hmm. But he's obviously scared. He's scared of the storm. My wife and I got a big chuckle over the whole bit about Dad teaching him to count between the thunderclaps and things. As our parents did the same thing with us oh, yeah. growing up. I, I still he, do it to this day. <laughs> yeah, right. So we got like, a lot you, of storms you, in our area this last couple. <laughs> Week, so I've been doing it constantly. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I've seen your dog do it because he needs a thunder buddy, you know. So I mean, it's the same same kind of thing. But I, I love how that that when that tree attacks, I think that is the thing is is that these spirits are attuned to Carol Ann. And we don't really know why in this movie. It's sort of revealed later on that the women in this family are all psychics or have, you know, premonitions or ESP or something like that. But if you just take the second one, one, that's where stuff comes out. Not in this one though. Yeah, no, no, not in this one. This one though, they talk about like her energy and her life force. And the fact that she's so young, she's so pure that it would be something that spirits would be drawn to good and bad one Mm -hmm. way or the other, because, you know, again, she's so trusting that you, she could be a vessel, you know, all those kind of things. Like you can get into all that. That's some of my Buffy knowledge coming in too, as to why that, that works that way. But I buy that. And what I always took it as was, well, okay, we're going to have the tree monster to try to eat Robbie because it will distract the entire family so we can get Carol Ann that way. And if it eats Robbie, then okay. So that's okay. But if it doesn't, eh, tree, let it go. You know, like I, I kind of felt like it was a total misdirection because it does get all of them outside. You know, e- even uh, the the oldest daughter, Dana, eventually leaves her post watching Carol Ann to run outside and help her dad and mom get Robbie back from the tree that's trying to eat him in the, the pool, you know, dug out that they're they're sunk into. And that's when Carol Ann gets absorbed, sucked into the closet portal. Oh, yeah. And it's it's a very effective scene. I mean, it's like you know, obviously we got a child in danger and everything like this. And 
you know, this all happens. And then when they go looking for her, the fact that that clown doll, we got to bring up that clown doll later, by the way. Oh, it's, yeah. Uh, you know, they think it's like her dead body in there that they think like, because there was a tornado that hit during this time, too. And they, they're probably thinking like, oh, did like a wind gust come in here or something and like push? I mean, they, they don't know what the hell happened. All they do is they go in there and everything's shoved into the closet. And there's a body, which looks like they're just underneath a sheet. And then they pull it open and it's like, oh, it's the, uh, you know, the... Uh, the clown doll. So it's it's a very effective scene, and they can't you know. This is where they also bring up the fact that they got a big giant hole in their backyard that's you know very dangerous <laughs> that they're going to be putting their swimming pool in. So mm-hmm. it's um you know it's just, just just a very good scene. But then you start hearing Carol Ann through the TV and everything, and that's really where this movie shifts tone. Where beginning it's very much like coming and I can say like coming of age, but really just kind of a nice little family friend you know friendly movie, and then this big thing happens and also it's like nope that was the turning point of the tone of this film and that's when we get you know they start looking into what do they do and really what do you do at that point as a parent you go to the authorities your kid's missing i mean we see this we see this crap on the news all the time a parent and their child's missing that young what's your first thought the parents killed yeah the parents yeah, the parents it. killed yeah, exactly them. so it's like they don't want to go there you know, go 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 to the cops right away. So they basically call in this 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 universe's Ghostbusters, and I I love these characters. Oh yes, the the group from UC Irvine, led by Doctor Lesh Beatrice Strait, by the way, talk about a powerhouse actress, and what a get at this point. You got an Academy Award winner from Network. I don't know if you've ever seen that or not, Nick, but that's an amazing movie, and she's awesome in it, and it just had a great career. And you bring her in along with Ryan and Marty, her two you know assistants. To basically, like you said, be Ghostbusters, but not in the sense that we maybe know. These are paranormal investigators. And what blows my mind about this movie is you watch the way these two guys talk about the phenomenon that they have observed. And one guy spent seven hours watching a Matchbox car crawl across a floor. And that's right before Steven opens the door and like all hell's breaking loose in the room. Yeah, they, got, point, they, got, they got the Incredible Hulk riding on a unicorn going around there. It's like, oh, you saw yeah. a Matchbox car move over there. Well, look at what the hell's behind this store, man. What I found out later was it's so amazing to me how much of those paranormal investigation shows that were so hot in the early 2000s and everything, and I think some of them are still going on, like do the same shit that this these people do. Like they have the little hairdryer looking thing that's you're measuring spectral energy and they got cameras going at time lapse and all this other stuff. And then they encounter this and it's like a whole new game. But what's awesome is the way Lesh leads them through all of it. She's a paranormal scientist psychologist so she's doing all this counseling technique and stuff like are you sure you want to do this are you going to agree to you know do our methods are you going to listen to us and when they you know they get the communication going back and forth it's i i loved everything about the people that they bring in uh for this and the way that they they run right into it i don't need their backstory i get all of it in the first three minutes they're on the screen oh yeah totally it's self-explanatory i mean it's it seems like these people are you know, the way I always took them is like they, they work for a college. I mean, whether I'm bringing in Ghostbusters mm-hmm. here or something like this, it's like, you know, yeah. there there's some people that, you know, work at a university or something. And it's kind of like what they do is like they kind of look into this stuff. And I, I I love absolutely. Like I said, I love this group and especially um, Dr. Lesh. She's awesome when she's talking with um with the mom and just like, you know, it's just her and, you know, the kids are everybody's asleep and it's just those two. And, you know, she pulls out her flask and just kind of like passes it over to her. It's kind of like. It's just it's it's a nice moment. It's a nice calm moment in this movie, and it just like I said, it's it makes all these characters so endearing. 
Yeah, I mean, they have this horrific events happen where Marty runs upstairs. He gets bitten by something. You see the, you know, the outline of the bite marks on his chest. This is before he starts sneaking food and it explodes in front of him, whatever that steak does. And then he crawls his whole face off, you know, and he freaks out and finally leaves. But like little weird stuff is starting to happen. It's starting to get a little more sinister. But when everything quiets down and Robbie's laying on top of his mother on the couch and Steven's asleep on the other couch and she's just sitting there and they're having this whole whisper conversation and she's relating to her woman to woman and all that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's so neat to watch a movie that has so much crap going on in it and normally would be in a real hurry to get to the next scare or whatever stop and slow down because the most humanizing thing about dr lesh is after her team and her see that room and everything that happens she's sitting downstairs trying to drink a cup of tea and she can't keep her hands from shaking yeah you know she's just like i i thought i had seen things i've seen nothing (laughs) you know but she's trying to remain professional the whole time which is i don't know it just makes that that the character so much more endearing Again, hallmark of a really well-written, well-put-together story and screenplay. We should give credit, too. Uh, Michael Grass and Mark Victor built the screenplay out of the, the Spielberg story. They're responsible for a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the way that, that the characters flesh out and work together. And, again, the hallmark of a good script is that as we introduce new characters and supporting players – they fit right in just like they've always been there. They're just part of the cog of everything that's going forward. And they bring in the, probably one of the most memorable things about this. And that's Tangina, the spiritual medium, this little Zelda Rubenstein lady who comes in and blows the screen away in 20 minutes. Oh, totally. I mean, she walks in too. I mean, it's, it's, it's just kind of like, you don't know what to expect, and then you see basically, you know, what, what you know Stephen describes as the mayor of Munchkin Land or something like that come in here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I, I love the scene too, where like all of a sudden she's upstairs and he's like, "I'm trying to communicate with her in the with her mind," and she's, you know, he's like, "See, she's she's a fake and stuff like this," and she's like, "No, she's able to say I'm I'm not a fake. I just don't like you trying to screw around with me. You know what I mean? It's like don't play games with me. I'm not here to do this. You know, I'm not here to you know validate myself to you. I've come here to help you." And it just really, like yeah. I said, really gives her like that authority figure where you feel like she's there and she's now almost kind of like the parent. You know what I mean? It's like she's like the one that makes you feel safe, that she knows what's going on and everything. And she has an idea. And that's when I think it's the most effective scene in this movie is when she's describing what the hell's going on. And that, yes, there are a lot of poltergeists, a lot of ghosts here and everything in this house, but they are not the bad ones. They're not. I mean, they're just people that are lost. You know, they're they're lost between, you know, our reality and the afterlife. And there's this thing, you know, that we're going to call the beast, which is basically the, another word for like the devil or something like that, like a demon that is basically it's in between realities as well. And it's keeping them there and it, it, it wants them there. And just when she's talking to like. You know, to us, it's this, but to her, it's like another child. It talks to her. It tells her speakers and everything. It's it's something that even like to this day, you know, being 36 years old and seeing this movie two dozen times, it's still a hair raising scene. I mean, I get goosebumps when she tells that. 
Oh, yeah. Look, it's great the way she describes it. And part of it's all in that voice. And it's high and that lilt that she has and all that kind of stuff. And she talks about how they're not at rest, but they will be if they can cross over. The problem is there's this dark presence and it's got Carol Ann under restraint and, you know, and all these all these kind of things. And the way she tells it, like, along with Jerry Goldsmith, absolutely 100% spot on. And this is the second movie in this series we've got with him because there's a lot of omen cues in this. I don't know if you caught him or not this time, but the way he layers the music in where it's kind of wistful, but then it's also really sinister all of a sudden because you get a minor key. And uh, the way he does that underneath her explanations makes it so good. But to me, Tangina's best scenes are when she finally is like, no, I'm in charge. This is how we're going to do this. This is how you're going to go get your daughter. And they like tell you, you got to start yelling at her. You got to, you got to do this. You got to get her to move. You got, you know, she is in total control. And that's, what's neat to see is this family that thinks they've got everything together. And even the paranormal investigators are like, no, we're going to turn it over to you because you're really the ringer, the expert, the closer here. Oh, totally. And yep. I mean, that that's what it is. And her plan, too. I mean, it's it's kind of insane. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, man, what would I do as a parent? I mean, I like to sit there and go like, yeah, I'm going to go head first into this freaking door here. But holy shit, what they what they're expecting these parents <laughs> to do. It's just like, oh, and I just, I, I love the scene too when they're going up there and it's like, okay, well, this is the portal and it's going to come out here. <laughs> and, um, family guy did a funny skit with that where it was coming out of someone's butt, but, um, <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I just, I like it where she's like ready to go in and she's like, she doesn't know you. I'm her mother. She's going to know you. And she's like, you've never done this before. And she's like, you haven't either. And she's like, yeah, you're right. You go. It's kind of like you see her. Right <laughs> yep. it's, it's, it's a nice piece of comedy at a part that's very, very, very tense. And, you know, when she goes in there and she gets the daughter and that skeleton head comes through. I mean, again, it's you can tell it's stop motion, but it's so well done. And I, I mean, I'll take that 100 times out of 100 uh, compared to CGI. I think it just looks great when that skeleton comes out and starts screaming at Steven. I'm just thinking I'm like, holy crap, that guy. Sh-. I mean, how he didn't have a heart attack when that happened. I don't know. <laughs> Look, the, the work industrial light and magic did for about 20 years of practical effects and things like that cannot be overstated how impactful it was and how it changed the way we watch movies and experience movies. And the thing about computer generated stuff is nowadays the stuff that's coming out in 15 years will probably still look really good. But the stuff in like the early 2000s and late 90s when we started doing that stuff, you go back and watch that stuff now, it's pretty bad. It's dated, right? Like you can tell. This stuff, though, looks just as good as it did in 1982 because it was a real thing. Some of the wistful little arms and all that kind of stuff still works. Or even the highlighted people walking around like they're on the boat of the Titanic and stuff like that. Like, you know, all those spirit, you know, things. Like I saw that again in Cocoon. Like they did that kind of same thing again years later and it still works when that that um skull comes out and roars at him though that's pretty amazing and the close-up on craig t nelson's face where he's just screaming his head off uh but i'm with you man what a wild concept okay we're gonna pass these two tennis balls let's make sure they're your your handwriting ryan yeah they are underneath all this uh, jelly okay so let's throw a rope through so you're gonna go grab your daughter and you're just gonna stay on the rope and we're just gonna yank you through the the portal and i'm like you're gonna do what Oh, yeah. <laughs> but when they come out through that portal and everything like that, I mean, I'm so glad that they didn't show what was on the other side. It's so much better to leave that to your imagination. And when they come yeah. out and it's all full of like, you know, you know, this yellow, not not yellow, but like this pink ectoplasm, which basically what I'm just assuming is almost kind of like, you know, entrails or you know what I mean? Like just 
pieces of like flesh or whatever. I mean, that's the way it kind of comes off. And they put them in the bathtub and they both both wake up and everything. I mean, it's it, it's such a great moment. I mean, I, I would imagine the first time anybody sees that, you get a little teary eyed that it's like, oh my god, they got her, they got her out of here. And then of course though, we get the uh, lovely, uh, I call it almost the alien plot. Where, you know, the first two aliens are, you know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, you think you're out of the woods. You think the story's been told. But, nope, there is a fourth act, you know, quote, unquote. Yeah, they're, they're, well, that's the thing is this movie ends in its second act, which is really long. It's a long second act. Ends where most movies end. Mm-hmm. We got the girl back. We're ready to go. And we move on. And, nope, we're going to really turn it up now. Because if you think the beast is going away that easy, you are wrong. And that that is what this movie wants to drive home is that, okay, you got your daughter back. But let's not let the mortals think that they're in control here. And this time, I'm coming at you with everything I've got. You know, and that final haunting that goes down, man, when the beast unleashes everything on Diane and the kids is unreal dude like all the crazy stuff the coffins coming up through the ground and the everything blowing out in front of them and diane getting ripped across the the ceiling which hey thanks again west craven you rip off everything <laughs> um, because yeah you know i mean really that thing i hope he wrote to steven spielberg a thank you letter after that because that's the tina death and a nightmare on elm street you got that. You got Robbie getting attacked by that clown. Finally, the clown attacks and it does what all evil clowns do to try to strangle little boys. What I love though is Robbie tears the absolute shit out of that thing. I'm like, yes, you go, kid. That's what you do. You just destroy that thing because <laughs> he's had enough. Carol Ann's hanging over dear life. We got all this going on. Dana's off hooking up with some boy, so she just rolls up at the end to see it. But the way that house tears itself apart in front of them, and then Steven gets home just to see the tail end of it, it is, it's unreal, man. Like, it is really tense the way that the last 10 minutes of this movie unfold. The whole climax here and everything like that is just, it's, it's amazing. And it's like, they, you know, they do it when Steven's gone. So it's like, you know, they're kind of at their most vulnerable. It's just them. They think everything's kind of ended. And part of me kind of was like, dude, why don't you guys get the hell out of there now? You know what I mean? But it's like they're going to have one more night there, but they think it's okay. And when everything like that happens, you know, happens and like the closet basically turns into a throat and trying to suck those kids back in. And then you have like the demon outside the door that's not letting her in here. And then the elongated hallway where no matter what she does, she can't get there. I mean, it's it's great. And then, of course, you know, he gets home and then, you know, they get in the car and they get the hell out of there. And then the house, I mean, that end scene right there where the house basically implodes on itself is freaking amazing. Again, just another effect that really holds up well. Oh, yeah, it does. That's the thing is you look at this and you watch it and you're like, God, that still works. Like, I still believe that house disappears inside of itself. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and again, I know, I know the urban legend is that, oh, those are real corpses out there. Like, no way. Those are not real corpses, but they're really well made up. And that tells you the makeup and the art department did their homework, which is kind of sick and weird, but they did their homework on what it would look like if a bunch of coffins just started shooting up through the ground all of a sudden. And I mean, you think about Diane in that pool. Right. With all those those uh, skeletons around her and stuff. I mean, that is just it's grotesque and it's horrifying. And her reaction to it is like any of ours would be. I mean, it, it and it's almost like the coffins start uh, you know getting resurrected or raptured in front of her as blocks through the house and stuff. And uh, I don't know. It's it's so cool. And I mean, I love it, too, how, you know, the evil boss or whatever, like Steven gets to let him know, like, hey, idiot, I know what you did. Like, clearly, this is your fault. And I think he gets you blown away 
way by spectral energy, uh, kind of like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the way some of that looked. Oh, totally. But again, it's just a, a great ending. And just like I said, I think this, you know, this movie just from beginning to end is just is there's not a moment here that just doesn't work. And that's just amazing. I mean, even like the stuff within the pool, I mean, apparently from what I was even seeing on some stuff too, with those skeletons, those are real skeletons. And that was, I guess was very common in these movies is that they would actually get real skeletons and stuff like that. So it's one of those things where it's like, Holy crap. I was more nervous about the fact that she was in there with electrical lighting around her. I'm like, Oh my God, one bad wire in there and she's gone up. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're pretty well insulated. They, they, Hollywood's known how to do that that effect for years, but it does ratchet up the tension and the idea. And I mean, you know, the, there's plenty of horrific historical incidents where that's actually happened to people, where they've been thrown in a pit of you know bodies and things like that. I mean, the movie The Killing Fields is based on on such a tale and, and things like that. And I actually met the guy that that happened to once, and hear him tell about it is even more horrifying than the than the movie. But yeah, the, all of this stuff is just. So unsettling and grotesque and unnerving and all this stuff. And then for them just to get away. And I love how they're just driving away. And they're like, don't look back, you know, don't look at it. And they don't even see their house disappear. They just know it is gone, you know, at the end of it. And, you know, we get the final little coda where they, they slink into the holiday Inn. they're all exhausted. And the last thing dad does is like, screw the television set. Oh yeah. That's, a great ending scene when he throws his TV set out of there, just kind of like, nope, we've had enough. So, <laughs> yeah, I remember when Holiday Inns used to look like that too. My wife and I both were like, oh, I remember those. Wow, yeah, they don't look like that anymore. But so, you know, you're not a paranormal Ghostbuster yet, but you did sleep in a Holiday Inn last night, Freeling. So, congratulations mm-hmm. on that. Well, Nick, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Poltergeist? Uh, extra large popcorn. This is again one of these great movies um, of all time. I mean, when you look at like what my top ten horror movies are. This is in the top 10. I mean, it's, again, one of these movies where it's probably in my top 25. Movies like this, you know, even like movies like, like, the, the, like the Lost Boys. It's like you go back and you watch it, and it's like it's a good movie. But what's great about it, though, is it's such a statement on the time that it was made. And it was, wasn't done purposely. It wasn't like, a, you know, like Stranger Things today where it's like we're going to go back and do something in the 80s so you can, you know, have nostalgia for the 80s. This is stuff that created nostalgia later for the 80s. And so when you watch this, you know, much like The Lost Boys, it's like you're going back in time to the 80s and getting that feeling. And just by doing that, just being a product of his time and being so well done, it's just it's, – it's amazing. So it's, again, it's just an extra large popcorn, just a fantastic movie from beginning to the end, and it's highest recommends. Yeah, same for me, man. Actual large popcorn. This is such a fun ride, even today. This movie's almost 40 years old. And my hope is that having done these three films together here, we've introduced them to a younger audience that likes Stranger Things and stuff like that, but doesn't really know The Omen, The Exorcist, and this movie. And now maybe they've gone back and rewatched them or watched them for the first time and experienced them because this movie, like our previous two, really stands up and it stands up because the the script is good the direction is tight the acting is out of this world great and it's all put together in a package that is very consumable and it makes you want to go back and rewatch it again. I mean, it had been probably 10 years since I'd seen this movie before going back and doing it. And I watched it twice before we did this because I, I was still catching stuff. And I think that's the hallmark of a great movie is the more times you watch it, the more stuff you're going to catch uh, and pick up on. So absolutely high recommend 
extra large popcorn. Been a ton of fun to go through and talk about. Now, we, we promised we'd talk a little bit about sequels here. I think the second one is, is terrible in almost every way and uh, undermines all the cool stuff about this movie. I've never seen the third one. And I'll be honest with you, that 2015 remake is just is just a disaster in every way. But what are your takes on the sequels? I don't have as much hatred for the second one as you. I do think it's one of those movies that tries to go back and retcon a lot of stuff for some strange reason. I mean, basically the whole plot of Poltergeist is the fact that they move these tombstones or these headstones without moving the bodies. So they built all these houses on top of these um, bodies and basically it caused the uh, friction with what was going on with, uh, with the bodies and the souls and everything like this, like, you know, but you know, I mean, it was always kind of funny though, thinking about this movie. A lot of people always say like, Oh, is that the one with the ancient Indian burial ground? It's like, no, that's, there's nothing with that. And I think kind of part two is where people get that confused because that's when they bring in the, uh, the, um, Indian guy who was from, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And, uh, you know, he's like a shaman or whatever like that. And they bring in this whole aspect of this preacher Kane, who I think is a really cool bad guy. But the problem is, is now they're talking about the fact that underneath the Freeling's house was that they ended up um, that there, this guy had a congregation. He put him in a cave and held him there until they were all dead. And it's like, wait a minute. It was a cemetery. So what you're telling me is like these people were underneath the cemetery. So it's like kind of like not only did they build a house on top of the cemetery, they built the house directly on top of this like, you know, cult or something like that so i'm like that's kind of a lot to swallow there but he is a cool bad guy and i like the stuff where he's going to the house where he's like you're all gonna die <laughs> because the guy the guy reeks of death i mean the guy right now i mean he has stage four cancer and you know it's sad and he's you know probably weeks away from dying but at the same time it's like you look at him and he doesn't look alive he looks like he's dead and it's and it's a really good performance but the rest of it, I mean, it's almost comical. I mean, the stuff with the braces and everything, it's just kind of like eh. – and then the ending too. You remember how I brought up the fact that it was good that they didn't show what the other side looked like? Well, they go and they oh, show yeah. you the other side. I mean, even the subtitle of the movie is the other side. So it's like we're going to go show you what was there. And after seeing it, it's like I ah, probably shouldn't if that was what your best idea was going to be. It's basically them floating with a bunch of weird stuff floating around them. It's it's a very, very poorly done scene. But it's, it's a – you know, I'm not going to – it's one of those ones where it's kind of like between a small and a medium. But for me, though, the third one is the absolute pits. It's freaking terrible. It's they even the director. I watched the documentary on this. The director of the movie did not want the movie to come out because of care of uh, Heather O'Rourke dying. He was like, it's disrespectful. The movie's a piece of shit. We don't want this to come out. The third act is a mess. We'd have to redo it, but we can't redo it. They end up redoing the third act, and Carol Ann is barely even a part of it. She's basically like they have someone dressed as her in these red pajamas, and they never show her face. And it's just so bad. Basically, the whole plot of it is that the parents have given her up. After all the stuff of part one and part two, they have given her up to her, his, um, to her aunt, who is played by the, the woman from RoboCop. And Nancy, Nancy Allen Nancy yes. Allen. also from Carrie. Yeah. Yes. And then she's married to Tom Skerritt and he's basically some hot, <laughs> because of course. Yeah. So, <laughs> and they, they live in a skyscraper in Chicago and it all takes place in there. And there's some cool stuff with mirrors as far as like the mirror effects and everything. But the movie is really garbage and they got a guy who's in a cane outfit. He looks so freaking bad and it's, 
it's it's a movie where I'm just gonna say don't even watch it. It's not even so bad. It's good. It's just it's an offensive movie when you when you look at Heather O'Rourke and you see the fact that she has those chipmunk cheeks from all the steroids that she was on. It, she actually died from an intestinal blockage and they misdiagnosed it and they thought she had like a like Crohn's disease or something. So they were pumping her full yeah. of steroids. So imagine that she's got an intestinal blockage, you get a pump full of steroids, and you see it in her face. I mean, her face is huge. She looks sick. And she's a trooper for doing the whole movie, but man, it's just, it's better not to remember her for that. So it's a movie definitely you can skip. I've seen half of the remake and <laughs> it's a movie where I actually tried watching it a few weeks ago. I, I was on uh, TNT or TBS or something and I, I put it on and I made about 15 minutes into it before I started making breakfast. And then I decided to vacuum the downstairs and that's just what it was so i really can't say whether it was a you know a, a recommend or not recommend but it's a movie that obviously didn't hold my attention enough to make me want to vacuum the hardwood so uh, dude, dude it's it's bad and i love sam rockwell but that movie's just bad and look they're redoing it the russo brothers are now doing another reboot of it so i'm, I'm curious to see what that looks like if they ever get it off the ground and you know wh where that'll go that'll that might be something to go back and revisit once it happens but like we said this has been a fun loosely strung together a retro perspective but i like the the strand of the cursed movies and doing it here in shocktober trying to do something a little different is always fun and again my hope with all of this was that we introduced movies that maybe a lot of people have heard about but they haven't rewatched recently or they haven't watched at all they just kind of feel like they know go back and watch these three movies i mean they, watch the exorcist the omen and poltergeist you will not be disappointed i think we've made that very clear here through our reviews and our ratings and it's always been a lot of fun talking about them uh, with you. So thanks for listening to this episode, everybody. Of course, you go to our podcast feed on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. You can find all of our archives, a lot of stuff we've talked about, we've reviewed before, you can find there. Leave us a positive review where you find the show. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at filmstrippod, and then search for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook to connect with us there. We appreciate the support. So until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.